Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. Today we have an amazing show. Our guest is a founder, CEO, published writer, and an overall great person. He's caring and he's inspiring, and we're going to have uh, a lot of fun talking to him. And before I introduce you to him, uh, let me just say hi to my co-host for the day, Liliana Sanchez. Lily, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited. It's going to be fun, isn't it? Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation and uh, in the pre-show, uh, it seems like it's going to be it's going to be a good one. So before I introduce you to our guest for today, let me just remind everyone that if you actually enjoy conversations like this one, if you actually want to follow logistics with purpose and make sure that you don't miss any one of these episodes, just sign sign up for supply chain now. You can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And you can also go to either our website at supplychainnow.com, which is, by the way, a new website. So I would totally encourage you to do that and visit the new website. Uh, or you can also go to our YouTube channel. Once again, this is Logistics with Purpose. And without further ado, let me introduce you to the CEO and founder of Sackcloth and Ashes, Bob Dalton. Bob, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Doing well. How are you guys? We're doing great. We're so excited to have you here, and uh, and thank you very much for giving us the time to to be here. This is, again, Lily is is a bigger fan than I am, uh, but uh, but we're both super excited to to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Bob, let's just start with the with the beginning, like your journey when you were younger. Where did you grow grow up? What are some of those kind of first memories that you have kind of growing up that kind of uh, led to what, where you are now and, and what, you, what you're doing? Yeah, so I grew up in a little town uh, called Coos Bay on the Oregon coast. And it's a little fisherman logging town. And um, uh, grew up there, had a, honestly a great time uh, growing up there. We were like three, three uh, hours away from any decent shopping And so we were out in kind of the middle of nowhere, but I grew up right on the ocean. And so, um, you know, I've always been connected to the water and to the ocean um, all growing up and, and uh, still am today. I can't, I always uh, am blown away when I meet people when I'm traveling and they're from the West Coast, but they ended up moving um, somewhere in the middle of the United States or the East Coast. And I'm like, man, I don't know how you do it. I love, love the West Coast. Um, and so grew up right on the water in Coos Bay and, um, and Coos Bay is surrounded, uh, uh, by the bay and it's just, it's so beautiful there. I, I have such a special place in my heart for it. Um, lots of fishing, I imagine, and everything that goes with the living next to the yeah, ocean. It's or? a lot of commercial fishing. And so I didn't actually grow up fishing much, but, um, I grew up maybe a couple blocks away from the ocean and it's not the glamorous, like type of ocean that you go out and swim in all the time. It's more of a gloomy, uh, kind of rainy, uh, you know, type of ocean where it's, it's more majestic than it is, um, tropical, you know? And so, um, you know, my life changed, uh, when I was 17 years old, I started going to an organization called young life and I grew up without a dad. So, uh, the, 
Young Life is an organization with a team of leaders that develop relationships with kids and mentor them and um, encourage them and, and show up in their lives. And so as a 16, 17 year old, to have a Young Life leader come into my life, uh, he was like 35 years old at the time. His name is Todd Tardy. And Todd just took me under his wing and just mentored me. And he, Todd was the first person that gave me a glimpse of who I wanted to be in the world. He um, loved his community. He loved God. He loved his family. He would have me over to his house for dinner. Um, and he'd work out with us after school. He'd go to our games. But he was the first person that I looked at. And I'm like, I want to be like him when I'm older. And as a young man, you know, um, growing up without a dad, that those types of moments are so um uh, they shape you, you know? And right. so right. that had a huge impact on me. He was the first one to tell me that I am a leader. He's the first one to give me an opportunity to speak on a stage. And so I look back on that time in my life and attri attribute a lot of my um, fundamental um, things that I learned as a young man uh, to those years of being with and under Todd's leadership. Is there an other than the, of course, the amazing mentorship that you got and the support and the encouragement and just plainly the, the love that he showed for you. Is there anything in particular that he used to say to you that you remember until today uh, from those times back then? Yeah, I mean, um, the most fascinating thing was his life, you know, but the things that he would share, you know, he shared, he talked a lot about Jesus. And um I grew up in a, I grew up going to a little Baptist church in my community by myself. I started riding the church bus when I was in second grade. And um, I was always fascinated with God and um, just kind of the mystery of life. You know, I was a kind of a deep kid. I, I remember standing on the, on the corner of my street and just looking up and feeling very connected with um, whatever's out there. And Todd was the first one to really talk about God and talk about Jesus in a way that um, honestly just felt authentic. You know, I sat in a lot of sermons and it just felt very preachy and a little bit judgmental. And um, But Todd was the first one to tell stories of Jesus that always stuck with me because not only was he talking about, you know, the way in which Jesus loved people or the way that Jesus served, he was living in that life. I mean, I was experiencing that uh, through his life. And that was that was an incredibly impactful time um, in my uh, development and in just my spirituality of, of really feeling a sense of connection with God in those early years. Um, and Todd helped me explore that and, and find that. Um, and it was done in such an authentic way that you almost felt no disconnect between the spiritual and, and your normal day life. It was just one and the same you know, Todd was the one who was like, if you're walking into a building, make sure you always look back. And if there's someone behind you, you hold the door open for them, you know, wow. just stuff like that. Yeah, there's this little things like that, that make like a huge difference, not only in the way we relate to other human beings, but just just becoming a better world. Because it's again, just the opening the doors, the helping people on the streets and this is a, so tell us, so when, uh, with this amazing example, you were 17, 18 at the time, what did you want to be back then? I mean, you, you were young and uh, didn't know exactly probably what you wanted to do out of, out of life, uh, or, or you had a, or you've always had a path and a strategy and you kind of are just fulfilling the, 
the plan that you you had back then? Yeah, I, I wasn't. I would say, you know, when I was a child, my uncle would come home and I would build these incredible. I would he, they bought me Lincoln logs. Yeah, and yeah. my uncle would come home and I would have built like these insane structures and buildings out of Lincoln logs that would just blow his mind. And he always told me like, one day you're going to be an architect. Right. And um, just with the way that I, I kind of dreamed in, in the design realm to construct things. And uh, that always stuck with me. And um, when I was in high school, what I was intrigued by not knowing where it could take me or what I could do with it, but I was fascinated with the art form of speaking and just communication in general. And I remember going to a Young Life banquet where they do like a fundraising banquet and Todd went up and gave a message. And I sat under a lot of Todd's teachings every week and he was one of the best communicators that I've still met as of today. And so that helped me really get a glimpse of like, I wanna be a powerful communicator and somebody who can stand on a stage and deliver a message through the art form of, of uh, whatever it might be, a sermon or a, a speech or uh, in some sort of specific address, but really having the early confidence. And I started visualizing myself uh, when I was like 17. I remember I walked everywhere growing up because my mom was, it was a single parent home. My mom was waitressing all the time. And so I would walk to school and I, and every time I would be on these long walks, I'd always be visualizing myself speaking on a stage and um, really crafting the messages that I would one day give. And so I thought I was going to be some sort of a speaker. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of options. You know, in Coos Bay, I'm looking around and I'm like, if I'm going to be a speaker, uh, really the only option for me is ministry. Uh, right that's all that was demonstrated to me at the time. And so I thought I was either going to do young life work the rest of my life or start a church or something, but I just love the art form of speaking. So, um, at 19 years old, I, um, actually at 18 years old, I applied to be a part of a pastor school in Mexico and last, I got accepted and last minute it felt through. And I was about to spend six months in Mexico under like training under an incredible pastor. That would have been, that would have been exciting. Uh, do you speak some Spanish or? No, not at all. I, I, that would have been great. I, uh, yeah, it was at an orphanage and it was just basically like, it would have changed the entire trajectory of my life. I think, you know, I would have been a pastor or something. Um, but instead I ended up moving to a small community in Oregon, like central Oregon called Monmouth. And they didn't have a young life there. And because Young Life had made such an impact on me, I wanted to start a Young Life. And so I, that's what I did. I started uh, forming a team of leaders and formed a committee and raised money and took those leaders into the high school to build relationships with kids. And that eventually built up to having, you know, 100 to 200 kids every week wow. come into Young Life Club. And I share messages every week to these kids. And so I got a, that's where I learned a lot of my entrepreneurial skills uh, that are applicable today is I got to learn how to build a team and call people on a mission bigger than themselves and cast a vision for the community. And, you know, I always say young life not only helped shape me as a young man, 
but it equipped me to do the work that I'm doing now. And so from 19 to 24 years old, I did that and thought I was going to do that the rest of my life. That's incredibly powerful. And just kind of taking a good idea and the encouragement that you had and that you went to this new town and they didn't have something. So you're like, well, hey, I, I guess I'll just going to start it myself. Yeah. And many, many, many nights, you know, standing under the night sky, looking up at the stars and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, that's the, that's the true calling of an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. I mean, you're basically just do it, saying that to yourself almost every day. For sure. And, you know, I got to experience at a really young age, like saying yes to a vision and stepping out in it and not knowing exactly what it's going to look like or how it's going to work, but trusting the process and understanding that it will, if I continue to move forward. And that's a really powerful thing to experience as a young person, because that cultivated a confidence in me that I felt like I could actually go out and do anything. I could start and do anything because that's what I've experienced. And, um, and so that was a crucial, crucial part of my journey of understanding that I can start with absolutely nothing and eventually have like this powerful experience where I look back and after five years of doing Young Life in Monmouth, you know, hundreds of people have been impacted and, and uh, I got to be a part of uh, something really great. That's incredible and so uplifting for everyone that's listening to us. It's just, uh, it's amazing. Lily, I think you, you had a couple of questions as well regarding that part of his life. Yeah. And well, first of all, let me share with you that I'm so excited because I just got my blanket from, from the United States to Mexico, and I really, really love it. And well, if you don't mind, Bob, let's talk about your um, professional journey. So could you share with us what was a key moment that helped to shape your worldview and led you to create your own organization? Yeah, so basically right at the tail end of, of Young Life, you know, I was 24 years old. And I wanted to transition out of Young Life and start. Um, I just got tired of fundraising, to be honest with you. The nonprofit world gets pretty exhausting when you're spending 50% of your time trying to raise funds. And you do a lot of asking. And I didn't really like that part of it. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to jump into the business world and, and give it a shot. And I didn't, like I said, you know, I had these entrepreneurial skills that I kind of cultivated through Young Life. I was passionate about being a speaker, um, but I didn't want to start a church. And so I was like, I'm just going to dive into a couple careers and see what could come out of that. Not really being a career guy, I never was really good at school and I never really was good at working for other people, you know, because I just wanted to go and I constantly wanted to innovate and do new things. Um, and if I wasn't intrigued by something or interested in something, then I, I become a zombie. And so, um, I just started applying for jobs. And during that, like I applied at like Red Bull, I applied at Nike, you know, and I didn't have a degree, but I'm like, these are things that I'm interested in, but not necessarily possible, you know, good qualified fit for, but I was doing it anyway. And in that same time period, that transition, my mom ended up going through a series of events and ended up um, finding herself living on the streets. And it was through a very, a, a huge stream of events that I won't go into huge depth, but she had lost a couple family members and, and, um, you know, really found herself in a really difficult spot. And so, um, she ended up moving across the United States from Oregon to Florida. She thought her aunt would take her in Aunt didn't take her in. So she ended up sleeping on beaches and benches. And that completely changed my paradigm of how I view and understand homelessness. 
um, because I, I, as passionate as I was about helping people, loving people, you know, serving my community, homelessness was one of those issues that I would drive by people on the street and have very specific biases and judgment toward where my attitude was, you should have worked a little harder or you should have made better decisions with your life. And that was my attitude. And when my mom ended up in that situation, it inspired me to actually do something about homelessness. So I started calling homeless shelters in my area to see what they needed. And they said, we need blankets. And I'd call the next shelter and they said, we need blankets. And I was familiar with the one for one business model that Tom's pioneered, but Prior to Sackcloth and Ashes, my company, there really wasn't a one-for-one model that was helping people domestically. And I thought it would be interesting to evolve the one-for-one model and make it local since homelessness is such a prevalent issue right here in our own backyards. And so I came up with the idea that for every blanket that I'll sell, I'll donate a blanket to that person's local homeless shelter. And, you know, from there had the idea, shared it with a bunch of people. And eventually I drummed up enough confidence to buy a sewing machine and a roll of fabric from Joanne's fabric. And I tried to learn how to sew and realized very quickly that I'm horrible at sewing. (laughs) And then um, found a sweet little lady in my community named Tammy and Tammy started making blankets for me. And so, you know, you, I look back on this time in my life, I was transitioning out of young life. I was starting a blanket company. I couldn't sew and I had no idea how to run a business or start a business. But what I did have was that mentality of, I have started something from absolutely nothing before and it worked out. So I'm going to do it again. I'll figure, I'll figure out the way. And so Tammy starts making me blankets. Blankets are in the back of my trunk. I started hustling up and down the Oregon coast, walking into shops and just being like, hey, here's why you need to buy these blankets over the blankets on your shelf. Cause I'm going to drive down to your local homeless shelter and donate all the blankets in my trunk. And I got into 20 shops out of about 200. And uh, that really set the precedent of entrepreneurship. About one out of every 10 things works out. And it's that one thing that works out that allows you to get to the next phase and continue on. And so on June 1st, 2014, sackclothandashes.com went live and we had 20 shops up on the website and decent photography. And it totally looked like we knew what we were doing. And uh, my only business strategy was to post on Instagram once a day, because in 2014, Instagram was kind of at the bottom of the wave. And I started posting on Instagram once a day because everybody was right here on their phones. You know, I was like, man, social media is like the new form of television. It's, um, you know, if we can show up where people are looking and where they're at, we'll be able to uh, dis- and display our product in a creative way. We'll get people's attention to want to participate in helping us with our mission. And so was posting on Instagram once a day. And in November of 2014, five months into it, I got an email from Instagram and they were like, Bob, we love your story. We love what you're doing. We want to feature you on Instagram's Instagram account. And I didn't even know Instagram had an Instagram account. But <laughs> I, uh, I looked it up and they had 42 million followers. And so I was like, that's incredible. You know, how long do I have to prepare for that? How many followers did you have by then before Instagram made that grand offer? We were at like six to 7,000. That's impressive though, right? At the beginning of uh, Instagram, you're kind of like saw it coming. You started doing it. That's 
That's an amazing story. And so before you continue with the story, which I'm super excited to hear, for all the younger uh, people out there that are listening to us, and they, we have a lot of people that are just recently graduating or they're still going through the phase of finding out what they want to do. I mean, what would be those like three main things that you would suggest them to do? I mean, what, what are those three main or, or three just suggestions about kind of Identif just identifying what they're good at going after it, things that you have explained to us throughout your life, but what do you think that they people should do or should have to kind of do things like, like the ones that you're doing? Um, the top three, it would be relatively obvious, but start work incredibly hard and don't give up. Um, that's it. That's, that's it. And, Totally. Yeah. And you say it's obvious and it might be, but it's just combining those three is hard. Yeah, it is. You know, um, that, I mean, that's the entire journey. You know, I'm still on that journey of, you know, working hard and not giving up. And so, um, you know, starting is typically for a lot of people, one of the hardest parts of the journey. Um, so starting, uh, was it was it for you as well? Because uh, you made it sound like so efficiently. Um, was it the starting part, kind of the hardest part as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, definitely. I don't know if it's the hardest part, but it was definitely hard to start. And uh, the backstory on that is, I had the blanket idea for probably four months, and all my friends were like telling me that I should I should pursue it. And, um, well, half of them were like, you're crazy out of your mind. And then half of them were like, you should absolutely go for it. Um, and so I found myself sitting in my car one day and my car was parked. I had like a, a little Honda Civic parked it at this, in this parking lot and leaned my seat back all the way. because I was really depressed and it felt like the world was caving in on me. Like my mom's going through a hard time. I have this blanket idea and I'm not doing anything about it. And I'm pretty much broke and I'm applying for jobs and nobody's getting back to me. So it's kind of like all of those things at once, you know, the walls, right. the walls right. just coming in. The perfect storm kind of closing on you. Yeah. And um, I'm sitting there and my knees are up on my steering wheel and my coffee cup is sitting on my knee. And I look up and on the coffee sleeve, it says, what are you waiting for? And I thought it was so bizarre that I took a photo of it. And I was so convinced that I was actually going to start the journey and actually pursue it. Cause I knew once I started, I, I, it, I'm not, a, I wouldn't stop. So I was convinced in that moment that like, not only am I going to begin right now, but I'm going to take a photo of this coffee cup. And then I'm going to blow it up on the screen when I give my first TED talk and I'm going to tell the story that's about to happen. And I drove straight down to Joanne's fabric and bought the sewing machine from there. Wow. And fast forward, I gave a TED talk and blew that photo up on a screen. So I feel like, um, you know, starting was not as easy as it, I might've made it sound, you know, I, I, it was a really dark, depressing time in my life. And I didn't really have any other options other than to, to give up in a lot of ways, you know, and to conform to things that I would not enjoy doing. And, um, you know, looking back, I'm like, damn, I was crazy. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, 
I don't know how to, I don't think I have that kind of faith necessarily that, that I did back then. Like there was a level of digging deep that you have to have to buy a sewing machine and try to learn how to sew blankets and think you're starting a blanket business. Um, it's, it's pretty insane. I'm actually shocked by my own self looking back at the old me of being like that. <laughs> it was, it's, so you have become a little bit less risk averse is what you're saying as kind of uh, you have grown and, and we'll go back to the story. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. But do you think that you're now actually a bit more risk averse or less risk averse than before? I think I have to be in some regard. Um, I just have, you know, back then it was, I was responsible for me and my wife, you know, now we have 22 team members and launching other projects and a lot more resources coming through the brand. And then there's a level of, you know, I'm still risky as hell and a gambler at heart, but now we're entering into deeper waters where we have to have, you know, an infrastructure built under us in order to sustain long-term. Right. No, and your story is incredible. And so for people listening again, three simple steps, right? It's just start the start work hard and don't give up. Never give up. Uh, That's incredible. I do want to say this too, about the starting aspect of it is why people struggle with starting so much is because things change very, very quickly. And the things in which you have in your mind of how things are going to be once you start are going to rapidly change and you have to be okay with that. And the best analogy that I give on that note is one of my favorite artists is um, Stedman and he throws paint at a canvas and he never knows what he's going to create. He just throws paint at a canvas like really aggressively until he sees it and he goes, you know, takes a pencil and he's like, oh, that's a horse, you know. <laughs> but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know what the, what it's, the outcome is going to be. He just knows that he's, can, he is um, committing to the process of creating something new. And, and the outcome will come. The outcome will come and it's your job to steward the process of it and possibly guide the outcome and to identify what that outcome is going to be. But your job is not to control it a hundred percent all the way through, or you will get tired and you will give up. Makes sense. And now going back to your initial story. So you got that, you had at least 6,000 followers on Instagram. You get an email from Instagram out of the blue and all of a sudden, they open up the door to 42 million followers is what you said they had at the time. Yeah, I emailed them back. I was like, hey, how long do I have to prepare for something like this? They're like, we're posting about you tomorrow. <laughs> what was the ask, though? I mean, they were going to feature you, which meant what, an interview? or They basically did like a, a one to two paragraph write-up about the founding story of me starting this blanket company because my mom ended up on the streets and... um yeah, they posted it on the day before Black Friday and it got like 450,000 likes and then we grew like 20,000 followers overnight. And then from that point on, I just took a huge interest in social media and really saw like 
there's something to this on a really deep level. And we have a really unique opportunity because we just got this like global exposure. And so I started contacting and we were being contacted a lot, obviously, like with that kind of exposure, we had photographers all around the world contacting us saying, Hey, we want to work with you. And so I picked up on that really quick. Like this was before influencer marketing, you know, right. Um, right. Like there was no influencers. It was just a bunch of random photographers that got hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, and so I would be like, Hey, can we send you a blanket and pay you to take some images of our product in some of the most beautiful places in the world and then post one of those photos through your feed. And so that's how I grew the brand for the first four years. We sold a hundred percent of our product, or probably like 90 to 95% of our product was sold through Instagram alone before Instagram even had a shopping feature. People were just clicking on the link in our bio and never sold into shops. Never, never had still today. I've never done any SEO marketing, um, no Facebook or Instagram ads. Um, like this was a hundred percent getting other people to represent and talk about our company made us a relevant, cool company on the, on the come up. And so that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So then by 2018, we had about a million people following our brand from all different platforms, you know, um, because Insta- the uh, exposure from Instagram it allowed us to build a Facebook following. It allowed us to build an email list. Um, and so you have all these other platforms, you know, and, and the influencers. I worked with over 200 influencers at one time um, and was really one of the, not only the first brands to start working with them, but also just helping them walk through the process of how to negotiate, you know, their rates and, you know, what they should charge. And I tried to be really fair to the market value. There was no market value. It was like, you know, they'll, they'll be like, Hey, I'll charge you a thousand dollars. And I was like, actually it's closer to 500, you know, um, based on me working with a hundred of you, this is kind of the consistent average. And then I try to stay fair to that. If somebody said 500 and I was like, actually it's closer to a thousand, you know, uh, try to stay to that market value of what was being created. Now it's completely different game, completely overpriced, um, completely oversaturated. And we're not in it as involved as we used to be with influencers, but um, still valuable. You know, if, if I was building a brand from, from nothing right now, I pursue it, but it's just a more expensive route. Um, and so, yeah, so 2018, we had about a million people following the brand from all of our platforms. And that's where we decided to launch our first major campaign called Blanket the United States, where our goal is... Where were you before you tell you tell us a little bit more about Blanket the US? Um, where were you manufacturing all your products uh, about that time? It was still everything done in the same uh, same town, the same people that you knew once before? Because I'm guessing you must have been... The demand kind of went through the roof after that, and probably there were some issues on the supply chain side of things, which is something our listeners are super interested in, in learning about as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating part of the journey. You know, uh, Tammy only could make so many blankets for us. Before. Right. Um, I was going to say, Tammy is probably not going to be able to keep up with the demand after that uh, Instagram post. Yeah, it was right after we got featured from Instagram that we were forced to start looking into other options. And so... I, I flew down to Los Angeles 
and went to the fashion district because I thought that that sounded really nice, but the fashion district is kind of a dirty hellhole. Um, and people are like slinging fabrics off the street. And, you know, I thought I would get stabbed like three times. Um, and so it's not as glamorous as glamorous as I thought it would be. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the fashion district, find some fabric and come home with some solutions. And that's not the case. I ended up digging in some really dirty giant warehouses of fabric. None of them worked out. And I was just really discouraged. And then I came across one of my friend's companies that was selling um, a certain product that had um, on the inside of his product, he had this like nice wool blend product. And I was like, I was like, well, you know, where do you get this? fabric you know i was just so in tune with fabrics and he goes oh, i have a manufacturer in in italy and um and so for the last five years i've been working with italians um and making product in florence italy and they've been incredible to do business with uh they have an insane ability to scale with us over the next uh few years and um they've been a great partner but now we make all of our fabric in florence italy made from a hundred percent or it's 75 percent to 100 percent recycled materials so literally like t-shirts and sweatshirts actually get they get put into a grinder and turned into yarn and that's what we actually make our blankets out of um so 75 percent to 100 percent recycled materials turned into fabric and then that fabric gets sent to our production hub in oregon and that's where we produce, that's where we cut. So, and we do all of our fulfillment in house and we fought really, really hard to keep all of the logistics um, from the time that we receive our fabric, keep everything in house if possible. Um, it just gave us more control and it gave us a lot more agility. It was not the most affordable route, but in the long run, we are going to be a very agile brand for the size that we're going to be. And so now we're producing about 14,000 blankets every month. And um, we are uh, looking to jump to that next level of production to probably be about 21,000 blankets a month here in the next three to six months. And uh, we're moving into a 27,000 square foot space um, by September. Uh, that's going to allow us to scale for the next few years until we source our second hub, which will be in Nashville. Congratulations. I mean, it sounds incredible and the growth has been exponential to say the least. And for en everyone out there that's listening to this interesting conversation um, with Bob, um, your, your designs are beautiful. I mean, the pattern of the blankets and all that, I mean, I, it's uh, Lily, you can probably talk a little bit more about that. So go ahead if you want to ask the next question as well and, and take it from here. But I know you're a big fan, so you must be kind of wanting to comment on the colors and the patterns and everything they're doing. Yeah, well, I just have another question. Uh, can you tell us about some of your milestones and what accomplishment are you most proud of today, Bob? Yeah, um, hands down, my team. I, uh, I, I attribute the success of what we've been able to do to my team a hundred percent. I think, um, you know, 
in relation to you kind of your thought on the designs of the blankets, like my team has worked really hard. We started with, um, uh, like native inspired designs that, that were very, um, we just thought were just, they were really cool. Um, that was literally, uh, the most that we thought about those designs. We just thought they were cool and they, we kind of pre-selected them from Italy. They were pre-created designs and we were just, we were selling blankets, you know, so fast and, and we were just picking out relevant designs that we thought would be cool to sell to our audience. And so we started selling native inspired designs for the first like two years or two, two to three years. Um, and then through conversations with native Americans, um, I realized that we were culturally appropriating through those designs and it made me do a really huge deep dive on what our strategy is moving forward and cultural appropriation in the way that I would personally define it is not just, you know, we weren't caught, we weren't infringing on copyright with these designs. We weren't stealing these designs from tribes. Um, we were simply using this, these designs that were happened to be native inspired and cultural appropriation is not necessarily stealing something from someone, um, but be possibly be taking away opportunity that someone else could have. And that's where we arrived with discontinuing all of our native inspired designs um, in 2019, 2020. And it was a big decision for us because about eight out of our 10 best-selling blankets were all native inspired products. And you know, when we had really, really deep conversations with our team about how this could potentially affect our brand from a sales standpoint, we felt like it was the right decision moving forward. And that's really the lane that I wanted to stay in with making that decision is we didn't discontinue our native inspired designs to um, receive a pat on the back or receive a reward. And we didn't discontinue those designs to avoid punishment. Uh, we made that decision because we believe that that was the right decision to make moving forward. And that was a really big uh, part of our journey as a brand. And so on that note, my team had worked incredibly hard to um, now not only partner with native artists, which we um, have partnered with Thunder Voice Eagle, and we have a partnership coming out soon um, in July with another native artist. And 100% of the profits from both of those collections are given to organizations that are specifically Native run and helping Native people. And um, my team has worked hard not only to form relationships with Native artists moving forward, but also to, to, to design incredible designed product that are 100% internally created now and um, and selling really well. And we have not only not seen a dip in sales, but we've seen a hundred percent increase in sales by making the right decision and working incredibly hard to innovate from a, um, an internal standpoint. I believe, uh, and very personally and passionately that at least these days, like, uh, the consumers are much, much better educated when it comes to things like this. And of course, making their decision, uh, as of whom to follow, whom to buy from. If you have a company that's sustainable, responsible, and you're supporting great causes like homelessness, and uh, then you're giving back to 
native uh, the native causes and all that. I mean, just it's amazing. It probably it probably wasn't like that a couple of years ago, maybe ten years ago. But I feel like the new generations are being a bit more educated in the way they spend their money. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you definitely have a younger generation that's paying way more attention. And, you know, like I said, we didn't make the decision to avoid punishment from that generation, um, which was a really powerful discovery in my journey is, is you should never make decisions to avoid punishment or to receive a reward, but make your decisions based on doing what's right moving forward. And that was a big part of our journey and a huge awakening for myself of, of how we should be going about business in a very ethical way, but in a very appropriate way as well. No, that's remarkable. And I'm sure that that's going to uh, resonate a lot with, uh, with business owners and people listening to this podcast. So thank you very much for, for, for sharing your experience and sharing that with us and, Going back to the campaign that you launched, Blanket uh, the U.S., right? How, how did that campaign come about and what, what is it and, and what do you want the listeners to, to take out of that campaign that, that you launched? You said in 2019, was it? 2019, yeah. Um, 2018, actually. It was, uh, it was June 1st, 2018 is when we launched. It was our four-year anniversary. And yeah, we were just in a place where sackcloth was in a really, like we were, you know, they say if you make it three years as a startup, you know, it's almost a miracle. It's like 80% of startups fail before three years. So we, we blasted through three years and I was cocky about it, you know, and then four years hit and I thought we were going under. And so I got, <laughs> and, and so for us, it was the four. What, what, were, what were the big challenges back then? I mean, why, why did you kind of, so why, why did you change your. I had the outcome so much. Yeah, I had a buyout, uh, a business partner that got involved really, really early on, like month one of the brand. And um, and yeah, fast forward a couple of years and Sackcloth starts to take off and he starts to get into a financial you know, situation himself. Uh, it put a lot of pressure on the company, put a lot of pressure on me. And, you know, for himself being a non-contributor in the vision at, by any means other than a very small initial investment um it almost completely he almost completely tanked the company and uh we held on for dear life and we fought and we fought and we fought and um and so we bought him out on may 1st 2018 and that's when we were free. That's when we were fully set free as a company. And we retained a hundred percent of the company. And since then have had no investors. Um, so we still retain a hundred percent of the company, me and um, two other people that I gave equity to based on the longevity of them being involved in the company. And uh, so we're still a hundred percent free. And, um, but May 1st, 2018, we bought him out. June 1st of 2018, one month later, it was our four-year anniversary. We have this huge following, little to no resources. And we're like, you know what? Let's launch a campaign called Blanket the United States. Actually, originally, we were going to call it Blanket America. And um, I reached out to this guy who had blanket blanketamerica.com. And he did a kind of a similar thing back like 2013. And um, wasn't using the website. It was a completely dead 
you know, domain and he had it trademarked as well. So I offered him, I offered to buy it from him and, and he was just showed absolutely no interest in allowing me to do that. So I called it blanket, the United States and trademarked that instead. And, um, that's what we actually like blanket the United States better now in 2021. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, not using the word America as much. And so, um, I just love the, the United States. I think it's a powerful, um, the word United is what we need right now. And, um, and so blanket, the United States felt like the appropriate name at the time. And our goal, we originally was like, Hey, let's donate 250,000 blankets. Cause that seemed like a lot at the time. And they were like, nah, let's do something a little bit more, you know, 500,000 blankets. And then we got to the point where we were like, you know what? F it. Let's do a million. Blankets. Oh yeah. Just, Round it up. Yeah. It's a better story. It's nearly impossible. Um, if we do achieve it, it will go down as uh, an incredibly. You will achieve it. Yeah. It's a matter of when, not. Totally. Yes. And so we set the goal of 2014 and um, that's our t- 2014 is our 10 year anniversary. So that's our goal is to donate a million blankets by 2025. Where, where are you guys now? About a quarter million. That's awesome. That's just unbelievable. It's such a great story. And uh, we're, hitting, we're hitting that tipping point. I actually, as of this last month, um, really started to see the forecast of like, we're going to hit a million blankets for sure. Um, just based on some of our national partners now. So when we launched blanket, the United States, it opened up the door for us to partner with companies that are interested in giving blankets as gifts to their employees or their customers. And when they, you know, sell a house or sell a car or do a mortgage or whatever that is, they give a blanket as a gift. The blanket is the perfect gift. Um, And so within a week of launching the campaign, we partnered with Subaru in Oregon. They bought 2,500 blankets. And for every Subaru that they sold, they gave a blanket as a gift. And we donated 2,500 blankets to homeless shelters in Oregon. Shortly after that, a company bought 5,000. Then uh, Cost Plus World Market bought 15,000. And then companies now all around the United States are opting in to help blanket the United States. And uh, as of this last month, we went into a national partnership with uh, KB Home. They're a national home builder. And every home that they build, they're going to give a blanket as a gift. And we're donating over 10,000 blankets to shelters because of them. Uh, In this last year, we went into a partnership with Churchill Mortgage. That bought 20,000 blankets. And for every mortgage they do, they give a blanket as a gift. And then uh, this last month, we landed a partnership, a national partnership with REI. And REI is now going to be selling our blankets in all of their REI locations starting in fall. Um, Congratulations. That's uh, I love that store. I don't, I don't like shopping, but REI, I particularly like so congratulations for, for all those successes thank you yeah they're all really exciting and uh, we're excited to come out publicly with a lot of those partnerships um you know closer to fall when they start launching and we have our biggest contract um that i'm most proud about um uh we signed on april 1st 2021 and i cannot say what that is yet uh, we'll wait. We'll wait anxiously for the news. But it is that's great. It is, it is the best partnership that we could have formed, um, and it's the biggest. 
we're again we're excited for you guys it sounds like you're doing an amazing job in what you do and you're changing the lives of so many people and as you said right just the blanket is a perfect gift and if you can actually give something that's just so meaningful for so many different ways and reasons and then at the same time you'll be not only saving the planet because you're 175 to 100% sustainable and you're responsible and you're supporting the homeless it's just it's a no-brainer i mean why wouldn't anyone kind of give a give a blanket how can people that are listening to you now participate in this uh people that may be having smaller businesses and things like that that they see and hear this and they're like well maybe maybe we should start gifting blankets or or changing some of uh the the promotional materials that most companies usually give out uh for something more meaningful like uh like your blankets yeah from the practical side um you know, obviously, when you buy a blanket, you donate. We donate a blanket to a homeless shelter in your local community. So we're actually providing a blanket down the street from where you live to a shelter. But the blankets themselves come in a box, and um, the box says "Blanket of the United States" on it. And when you open it up, it shows you a map of the United States that has dots all over it that shows you all the homeless shelters we give to. But when you pull your blanket out of the box, on the bottom of the inside of the box, it says, take it a step further, place the following items in this box and donate to your local shelter. And we have like lip balm, water bottles, socks. And so you can actually use the packaging in which the blankets come in to fill it up with items for people in need and then go and deliver it to somebody on a street corner or at a homeless shelter. And that's something that we don't necessarily promote through our platform, but it's something that I like to add an element of surprise for somebody who receives a blanket um, that they purchased or as a gift that they're face to face with the realities of, uh, of the opportunity to be able to do something on a really personal level that really nobody's going to see. If you do fill the box up, nobody's going to see it. If you don't fill the box up, nobody's going to see it. That's up to you. And I, it's almost a, um, what I would like to consider performance art um, in that it allows people to challenge the way that they think about this particular issue based on their willingness or unwillingness to provide resources in a really practical way through a vessel of, of this box. Um, and it's not to shame anybody or guilt anybody, um, but it's more of a uh, opportunity if somebody wants to take it a step further. So that's the practice practicalities. I don't say that to so you can buy our blankets. Um, we're actually completely sold out and um, you can only buy blankets right now on back order anyway. So this is not a, a sales pitch. Um, but that is the practical aspect of supporting the company and the mission um, and uh, your local homeless shelter. And then beyond that, you know, apart from sackcloth and ashes and the product itself is just, you know, look people in the eyes when you drive by them on the street. You know, I, I think a lot of us are uh, what I would consider green light racers, which is we're trying to hit the green light so we don't have to stop and be faced with the realities that exist in our society, um, you know, which is just people that have come to a place in their life where they're having to stand and hold a sign and ask for help. And uh, most most of the time, I don't have anything to give them. Um, but to simply look them in the eyes and, you know, nod my head and acknowledge them, it goes a long way, you know, and I think that that is the start of actually making a difference is acknowledging that these people are people 
they're people with real stories, you know, that have gone through a series of events in their life to cause them to arrive in that situation. And we all go through difficult circumstances. You know, it's, it's not a, and it could be anyone, right? So it could be, it could be anyone. It's not kind of uh Because because what you said a couple of minutes ago about like, well, you always have this preconceived notion that, well, it's because they didn't work hard or they didn't want things harder. It just has absolutely nothing to do with that. Like the system sometimes is just not in line and doesn't really help them much either to kind of go out, uh, come out uh, of the situation. And, and we have to be empathic, empathic for that. And, and yeah, as you said, just look people in the eye and and try to lend lend someone a hand. For sure. You know, and, and, um, you know, my advice for people that want to, you know, the number one question I get asked typically at events and in different places I'm sharing that is where do I start? You know, like, what do I do? Um, number one, don't give out of guilt. Number one, when you give out of guilt, you really kind of curse the gift. Um, That's a personal opinion, but I believe you curse the gift and it's not good for you. And it's not really good for the person that you're giving to. So uh, you're kind of giving in with a negative energy. Um, number two is if you see a need and you have the ability to meet that need, then meet the need. Number three is if you see a need and you can't meet that need, find somebody who can and build a bridge. And I would say that Over 90% of my entire journey is not me meeting direct needs and carrying the weight of every need that I see I feel obligated to meet, but it's me stepping up and having the opportunity to be a bridge builder and actually make connections um, to be able to meet needs that I absolutely can't meet, but know somebody who can meet that need. And we all have an opportunity to either meet a need or be a bridge builder. And I think we need more bridge builders in society right now. Nicely said. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. Lily, I think you were talking about goals and you wanted to talk about the future, uh, the future of uh, Sackcloth and Ashes and some of their uh, future projects that they have. Go ahead. Yeah, well, we know that you have a goal of donating one million blankets to homeless shelter by 2024. Uh, what are your organization's role for this year to help you to get there? What are the organizations that are going to help us get there? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, our current partners, like I mentioned, is, you know, Churchill Mortgage, KB Home, uh, REI, Cost Plus World Market. Like these are powerhouse national companies, very well respected. And those are the types of national partners that we want to partner with is well-respected organizations that not only care about helping people in their communities, but care about every aspect of business from a sustainability standpoint, from a give back standpoint, from a, uh, a team member standpoint. Um, we want to align in our values, not just our mission. And, and that's really important to us. Thank you. And um, so, Bob, I mean, I feel like we could probably continue talking for another four or five hours, but uh, but I think we appreciate this. It's been very powerful, very insightful. And uh, before we kind of uh, let you go, because I know that you're an incredibly busy man uh, on building bridges, uh, I'll send a couple of emails out there after this conversation. Uh, I know you've had the opportunity to meet Terrence Lester at Loft Beyond Walls. 
but uh but there's a couple of uh people that might potentially be helpful and and so i'll do that after this but where how can our listeners connect with you and 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 what would you advise those listeners to to do when it comes to uh not only helping others but just facing uh, some of the challenges that we faced because of the pandemic i mean what was the pandemic for you and your team and the organization um what can we do to kind of like come out of that which i'm hoping it will happen soon yeah absolutely um you know through the pandemic you know i was like everybody else in the early stages freaked out and not knowing exactly what it was going to mean not just for business but like are we gonna you know are we gonna survive this thing i just didn't know what um what it actually entailed and so after i got kind of through the fear factor of it um i started asking the question what can we do and how can we help you know how can we be contributors in this time you know sackcloth and ashes exists for times like that you know of being able to step up and help people that are affected by traumatic difficult circumstances in their lives that find themselves living on the streets and you know with the pandemic it it's definitely increased and spiked homelessness overall and in general And so as a company, it was like, this is not a time to be fearful. This is a time to step up and lead and ask the questions. What can we do and how can we help? How, how can we be a true contributor? And um, I started emailing different leaders and people that I'm connected to and just saying, hey, look, I know I'm a small fish um, and that sackcloth is a very small company in comparison to yours. But let me know if there's anything that I could do to help uh, serve you and, and contribute to you in this time. And I got a call from the CEO of World Market like two days later. And he's like, hey, Bob, uh, actually, there is something you can do. I know you work with over 500 homeless shelters and programs in the United States. We're about to shut down our World Market locations for the next you know, foreseeable future. Um, we have a ton of excess food and Easter supplies. Can you send me over your database of programs? We're going to mobilize the food and the Easter supplies to people and programs in need. And so within about 48 hours, my team got them our entire database and list uh, to all their store managers. And um, that's when I realized we can do something and we can be contributors and we can be bridge builders, you know? That was that was a huge bridge that you, you, you built there. And I'm sure that it changed the lives of a lot of people thanks to that email and your proactive approach towards, hey, how can we help? 100%. And that that really sparked a vision for me that I feel like I um, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to. And it's the foundation that we're launching in around October of this year. And the foundation is called Love Your City. And it will be a website, loveyourcity.org. And you're going to be able to type in your address and we're going to show you the grassroots organizations in your community and how you can immediately take action Uh, by donating money and filling out a volunteer form that gets sent directly to that organization. And so um, it's basically what we experienced with that world market situation, but going to be done for the everyday person that says, you know what, I want to make a difference, but I don't know where to start. Loveyourcity.org will be a national resource and tool for anybody that wants to participate and make a difference on a local level. And uh, maybe we'll have a, a follow-up podcast at that point. You would always be invited. And yes, we should definitely have at least one more. I mean, we'd love to, we'd love to continue this conversation and dialogue with uh, CEO and founder of Sackcloth and Ashes, Bob Dalton. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, if you guys 
enjoy this conversation as much as we did, please don't forget to sign up for Supply Chain Now. This is your episode, your series, Logistics with Purpose. And once again, Bob, it has been a, a terrific conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your life story. Congratulations, Bob. And thank you for sharing. Congratulations. Thank you guys for having me and I uh, appreciate the conversation.